You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Come, Holy Spirit. Come like a fire and burn. Come like a wind and cleanse. Convict, convert, and consecrate our lives to our great good and to thy great glory. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn in your hymnal to hymn number 158 and just set it beside you so you can see it, or rather, I'm going to ask you to read it at the end with me, and um, for reasons that I'll explain. So 158, and then just keep it close by, and then we won't have to all be rustling through the hymnal. Now, I have a little um, question here. I want this air conditioning is blowing right up. <laughs> well, I guess I'll just have to get used to it. <laughs> it's a little disconcerting. <laughs> I always feel as if I have to say right away that I've, although I've lived in New York for 50 years, I um, still have my Tidewater, Virginia accent, so you can locate me. You don't have to ask me at the door where I'm from. I have been here many, many times to the Church of the Advent, the Cathedral Church of the Advent. I think I've been here since before it was a cathedral. But I haven't been here for about 20 years, and I can't tell you how my heart really swells just to walk into this space where so many wonderful things have happened and where I've heard so many wonderful preachers preach and speakers speak and have indeed been a speaker myself on occasion. It is wonderful to be here again, and I'm very grateful to your dean for inviting me. Now, two weeks ago, on the front page of the failing New York Times, there was a striking article about an American defense attorney on a prominent case who is unfit for his duties. His name is Alaric Pete, a former Navy SEAL with only six years' experience as a lawyer and no experience at all on a death penalty case. He himself agrees that he is unfit for his duties. But it seems that the whole legal team quit the case except for him. He was the only one willing to stay on. He says, there is no way that I qualify as learned counsel, but leaving the client without a lawyer to defend his rights would be even worse. Now, Mr. Pete's client is Abdul Rahim al-Nashiri, a Saudi Arabian accused of orchestrating the bombing of the USS destroyer in the year 2000. 
18 years later, his case is still being litigated. For four years, Al-Nashiri, I pronounced it wrong, Al-Nashiri, was tortured at a CIA black site and was so profoundly traumatized that his confessions are tainted. Many of the lawyers who left Lieutenant Pete alone on the case have expressed extreme disdain for him. But one of his professors at the Georgetown Law School put his photo up on her ethics class, uh, in her ethics class, as an example of a courageous and ethical representation. She said further, he's pretty gutsy. This legal train is in motion and he steps out in front to protect his client. I don't know that all lawyers would do that. Let's assume that al-Nashiri is indeed guilty of plotting the terrorist act, although that is in doubt. Let's assume that he is guilty. Is he deserving of a defense? Does such a person have any rights? Our system in America teaches us to presume innocence until proven guilty. But the question today for this sermon is, what exactly does guilt and innocence mean in the sight of God? As Jesus Christ was being nailed to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This saying sets forgiveness at the heart and center of St. Luke's narrative of the Passion. But to what extent, we may ask, does Christian forgiveness extend to those who know exactly what they're doing? A few weeks ago, I had lunch with three good clergy colleagues, and we discussed this very matter. One of them described a poster he had seen in a pacifist church not long after U.S. Special Forces ambushed and killed Osama bin Laden. This poster had an illustration of Jesus greeting and embracing Osama bin Laden. Now, all four of us presumably pious clergy, agreed that this poster was offensive. But we agreed also that it sharply raised the question of exactly how far Christian forgiveness should go and who should receive it. Did Osama bin Laden know what he was doing? Should only people be forgiven who don't know what they're doing? Did the young man with the AR-14 at the Stoneman Douglas High School know what he was doing? That is an open question. The book of Leviticus prescribes various religious sacrifices that should be made by people who have unwittingly broken the laws of God. The emphasis is here is on the guilt of those who are unwitting they have disobeyed, but they, do not, they did not realize what they were doing. Now, significantly, there is no provision made in the book of Leviticus 
for deliberate sin. Isn't that interesting? If you commit an unwitting offense, not knowing what you are doing, you have a, re a remedy, the animal sacrifice. But the person who commits sin with a high hand, as we read in the book of Numbers, that person has no remedy, but will be utterly cut off from the community, and his iniquity will remain upon him. We'll get back to high-handed iniquity, but for now we'll just notice that the basic idea in the sacrificial rituals of Leviticus is that atonement for sin costs something. Something valuable, the animal sacrifice, has to be offered in restitution. And of course, the richer you are, the more valuable the animal had to be. Something valuable has to be offered. This is what the book of Hebrews in the New Testament means when it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood represents the ultimate cost to the giver. There is something powerful here that grips us, I think, in spite of ourselves. We are left, however, with the problem of the person who knows what he or she is doing. I've often told a story about a man I knew in one of my former parishes. He was very well educated and prominent in the community, but he was not at all self-important. I had no idea that he had been in the fabled 10th Mountain Division during World War II, and I certainly didn't know that he had received the Silver Star until I went to a veterans gathering and someone told me about it. So I started ooing and aahing to the veteran about his silver star, but he cut me off. He said crisply and decisively, nobody knows who deserves what. The more I have thought about that, the more profound it seems to me. Depth psychology in the 20th century revealed what the great writers like Shakespeare knew all along. The web of our life is of a mingled yarn, good and ill together. Every one of us is a tangle of mixed motives, most of them entirely unconscious and inaccessible to us without psychotherapy, and even then largely mysterious. An, air, an act of great courage, silver star worthy. Such an act performed by one person might be nearly impossible for another person with a different psychological makeup. Only God knows who deserves what. Now what about a high what about high-handed iniquity? Wonderful phrase. What forces make a person deliberately do bad things. We know so little about this. Certainly people who commit terrorist acts are doing it with a high hand. Maybe. Suppose they are only 16 years old or less and very impressionable. 
Are they doing it knowingly? It's hard to say. The CIA was acting with a high hand in setting up black sites to torture people. Torturing another person does profound damage to the soul of the people doing the torturing. Human justice is necessary for human life to exist, but human justice is exceedingly imperfect, and human justice cannot restore what was lost. In speaking of God, therefore, we must seek other dimensions. In certain cases, Christian forgiveness seems almost immoral. The picture of Jesus embracing Osama bin Laden is a very superficial image of the nature of Christian forgiveness and the justice of God. There is something missing from this image and that is the righteousness of God. Now, for the Apostle Paul, the righteousness of God was absolutely central. But Paul was writing in Greek. We have to find two different words in English to say the same thing that Paul was saying with just one word. For Paul, in Greek and in Hebrew, by the way, Paul was saying justification and righteousness in English as two words, but in Greek and Hebrew, it's only one word. Justice, justification, and righteousness mean the same thing. So when Paul says in Romans 4 that we are justified by the blood of Jesus, he means that we are made righteous by Jesus' death on the cross. This is more revolutionary than forgiveness by itself. And I hope by the end of this sermon we can all see that together. Paul's word justification is more radical, more revolutionary, more foundational than forgiveness by itself. In Romans 5, Paul sums up the Christian messages, the Christian message, in words that everyone should know, whether Christians or not, because this is the dead center, the heart and soul of the Christian message, and what the death of Christ means for every human being. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, heart and center of the gospel. In Romans 4, Paul says the same thing, only in a more complicated way. It's a little hard to follow. He's speaking of Abraham. He says that Abraham knew better than to trust in his own works. Rather, he trusted in the God who justifies, wait for it, justifies the ungodly. Now, every single religious idea that the world has ever seen depends on a concept of becoming more godly, more religious, 
more spiritual. What would be the point of religion if not to make people godly? Here is where the Christian faith diverges from religion. And here, the gospel preached by Paul appears in its most radical form. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. It doesn't say forgives the ungodly. It says justifies the ungodly. Now, who are these ungodly people that Paul is talking about? We have only ungodly people here today. The ungodly people are you and me and everyone listening to St. Paul, along with Abraham and Isaac, Sarah and Rebecca, Peter and Paul, Mary and Martha. Paul, 2,000 years ago, could not have known that the great American gospel was going to be God helps those who help themselves. Contrary to popular belief, those words are not in the Bible. But even though Paul didn't know that, he could not have demolished it more succinctly than in these words, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. And he expounds that in the next chapters in Romans. We are all the ungodly, including Paul himself, first of all, he says, because we have all been born under the sign of the disobedience of Adam. And we have been in sin knowingly and unknowingly ever since. In the book of Job, there's a lot of talk about God. Job talks, his wife talks, the so-called friends talk for 37 long chapters. Blah, blah, blah. Actually, some of it's pretty good, but it's a little hard to take for 37 chapters. In chapter 38, God shows up in person, and God speaks uninterrupted for four more chapters. And after that, Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. It is only when we meet God it is only when we meet the Lord Jesus as a living Savior that we understand the true meaning of repentance in the dust and ashes of our own pretensions. There are elements of myself that are indefensible. There are elements of yourself that are indefensible. If you don't know that, you do not yet know the grace of God. 
If we don't understand our own defenselessness in the grip of sin and death, we do not yet know who it is that justifies the ungodly. The name of this sermon is The Defense of the Defenseless. Forgiveness needs to be understood in this context, the context of the one who justifies the ungodly. It is not up to us to determine what God is going to do one way or the other about Osama bin Laden. We can only say that God is able to do mighty works of making right what has been wrong. We can only say, never mind Osama bin Laden. God is going to make right what is wrong with me. How I look forward to that day. And he is going to make right what is wrong with all of us. Justification, therefore, means more than forgiveness. It means forgiveness, but it means more than forgiveness. Because the forgiveness offered by one human being to another makes no sense in, case, in the case of high-handed sin. The only way we can think of, in terms of forgiveness in extreme cases, like the case of the woman who turned to the killer in Charleston, in the courtroom and said, I forgive you. The only way that we can think in terms of forgiveness in such a case, and this was that case, the woman who said that knew that God can and that God will make right all that has been wrong. Luke wrote a beautiful, luminous gospel but we need Paul to tell us that forgiveness by itself is not enough. To be forgiven by God is to be justified, remade in the image of the new Adam. Hmm. The killer in Charleston was named Adam, wasn't he? In any case, to be justified is to be remade in the image of the new Adam who is Jesus Christ, the great defender of the defenseless. In this sense, the defender of the ungodly in the earthly court of justice is a reflection, a very dim and imperfect reflection, but a reflection nevertheless of the justice of God. While we were still helpless, some translations say weak, it's the same general meaning. While we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. We are guilty as hell, and the legal train is in motion. But the Son of God, who will come to be the judge of all the world, has stepped out in front to protect us. Many people know the hymn, Abide With Me, but do not fully recognize the radical meaning of the words of the hymn. Help of the helpless, 
Oh, abide with me. If you understand this, you are already being remade by the sacrifice of Christ. This is the gospel. The purpose of these services during Holy Week is to bring all of us sinners together to recognize ourselves as guilty. And in the same moment, to know that we ourselves are the very ones for whom Christ died. He is the one who defends the defenseless, the one who justifies the ungodly, the one who will incorporate us into himself and remake us after his own image so that each of us and all of us are made fit for his eternal embrace. Will you read together with me the words of our holy Jesus? Ah, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended that man to judge thee hath in hate pretended, by foes derided, by thine own rejected, O most afflicted. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. Lo, the good shepherd for the sheep is offered. The slave hath sinned and the son hath suffered. For our atonement, while we nothing heeded, God interceded. For me, kind Jesus, was thy incarnation, thy mortal sorrow, and thy life's oblation thy death of anguish and thy bitter passion for my salvation. Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee and will ever pray thee. Think on thy pity and thy love unswerving, not my deserving. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.